0: I'm going to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning as we've been looking at this wonderful passage. A few minutes ago, we sang, How Can It Be? A song that reminds us, if we're paying close attention to the way the verses progress, that Jesus was the creator of all things, and yet He came to earth to save us from heights of bliss to depths of woe, in loving kindness thou didst go. How can it be? That's really the thing we've been exploring in this study of the scriptures on Sunday mornings during the Christmas season. And we've been doing that uh, under the title, Why the Word Became Flesh. And Friday night, if you were with us for our Christmas Eve service, I called your attention to 2 Corinthians 9.15, where the Apostle Paul proclaims, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The word inexpressible in the Greek language describes something in at least three ways. It's something that is inexpressible. It defies expression. There are no words that can be combined in any language to really give it full expression. It also describes something that is inexplicable, something that defies explanation. You can't really explain why something like this would happen or how it happens. And it also describes something that is inexhaustible. It defies estimation. You can't fathom it. It's a mystery. I think that's the idea behind the theme of this song that we just sang. When it comes to the idea that Christ came down from a height we can never understand to a depth that we can never fully appreciate, it's something inexplicable and something that is uh, inexpressible and something that is inexhaustible. And all we can do is just say, how can it be? But while we can never really understand how God became a man, we can appreciate in significant ways why Jesus became a man because the Bible tells us why. And he tells us here in Hebrews chapter 2, I posed the simple question last week, why did Jesus have to become a genuine human being? Why did it have to be that way? Because in the text, it it says it's fitting that he did this and, and he had to be made like his brethren, his brothers and sisters. Why? Why couldn't God have saved us a different way? And when we read the chapter and read that he had to, to do it this way, that he had to become a human being to save us, it makes the humanity of Christ essential to our salvation, just as essential as his deity. So, why did Jesus, the Son of God, have to become a genuine human being? There are four answers in this chapter, four reasons that Jesus had to become a man. We looked at the first last week in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It gives us the first answer so that he could die for us. It says in, in verse 9, We see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You can't kill a god. The Son of God, whom Paul describes as dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen, could never have died for human sin. Jesus had to enter our race like every one of us did so that he could exit our race like every one of us is looking forward to through inevitable death unless the Lord comes to take us away. But it was that agonizing, humiliating death that led to Jesus' greatest exaltation. Notice in the verse, it says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's Philippians chapter 2 that Andrew just read for us. Because of his death, he was exalted to the highest station. It was because of that death that God highly exalted him and gave him a name that was above every name. But there's a second answer to the question, why did Jesus have to become a human being? And that's what we're going to explore this morning answer number two. And it is so that Jesus could identify with us. So he could identify with us. He became fully one of us. So he could be a human being like us and represent us. So let's notice the text here, starting in verse 10, where we're picking up our reading from last week. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. We'll look at that more closely in a few minutes. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And we could say brothers and sisters this morning saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation of brothers and sisters, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You know, I remember moving to North Carolina to begin pastoring a little church in the mountain town of Hendersonville. And the people who were there at that church could tell right away that I was not from around here. Aaron Burke is back there. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. He was the interim pastor of this church before I came to pastor it in like 2003. And he knows the people there. And uh, they were not like many of them, were not like those that I grew up with in Michigan. Now, Rena, my wife, she is from the South, okay? So she's been my redeeming factor all along. She's been helping me to navigate the culture and teaching me many things. And uh, I was coming as a Michigander and... I had been a youth pastor of a church in Minnesota. So I was totally engrossed in, in what it is to be a northerner. And uh, I came down and would talk to people. I was a little too animated sometimes. And I, I, I would talk loud and I would talk fast. Rena calls it my Yankee voice, okay, when I, when I get going like that. And, and people sometimes would kind of back off, you know what I'm saying? And we moved into a little uh, community of about 20 houses when we moved to Hendersonville. And the first week I was there, I met a neighbor lady on the road. And uh, she started asking me questions about who we were and where we were from and so forth. And I told her we had moved down from Minnesota. And she literally said, oh no. She said, you're a Yankee. And I laughed out loud and looked back at her, you know, to see if she was getting the joke too. But she wasn't laughing (laughs) at this at all. So I was like, wow, welcome to the neighborhood. Uh, And, you know, it made me want to fit in. And so I would try to do things like the locals. Uh, but I would sometimes overcompensate. Like I would try to insert y'all into different conversations I was having and I would give announcements from the pulpit of the church and try to, to make it come off. But, but it, it was very un, disingenuous because I didn't really know how to, how to talk Southern at the time. I'll tell you though, after 13 years in Hendersonville, I can sound just like one of them, okay? After the service, I'll demonstrate to you if you want me to. Uh, but it's, it's not y'all, it's not two syllables, it's one syllable, it's y'all. Okay, just y'all, that's all it is, all right? And eventually I picked up on that, but at first I I, I probably sounded uh, very uh, pedantic and and just like I was trying too hard. But after being there for 13 years, things came a lot more naturally and I got used to all of the different things in that little mountain community, the winding roads, the ratio of cars to trucks. If you drive a truck in the South, you'll get a lot more respect uh, down here. I just have to say that. Uh, Sweet tea, understanding what people are saying, But after 13 years, uh, when I accepted the position to teach at Bob Jones Seminary and we left Hendersonville and moved to Greenville, I I literally felt like a redneck moving down to the big city. Everybody in Greenville seemed so refined to me all of a sudden because we had just sort of enculturated up there and that was where we felt like we fit in. In fact, Uh, you know, we got our car stuck already on the gravel road that's our driveway and we got hung up there and so like the wheel was hanging off and I was like, what am I gonna do about this? And I met my neighbor that way, Cecil. Uh, who drove by and he goes? I got some four wheels or wh- wheels up there, and I can I can change that thing. We can pull you right out. And I was like, I'm home. <laughs> oh, this is, sounds great. We're, we we moved a little bit a little bit closer to the mountains, and 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 uh, we we now feel like okay, we know the language around here. We fit in right away. But you know that's probably true no matter where you go. If you move to a different part of the world and you're not from around there then you can live in that place the rest of your life and you can make great friends and know the people. But in some sense, you will always be an outsider. In fact, there are some places you can go where you're not even really considered uh, part of the culture there unless, not, not, even if you were born there, you're not. Your parents or your grandparents had to be born there. If you're gonna be counted as a native of that area, But I want you to compare this common idea that we have in moving to a new area with Jesus leaving heaven to come down to earth. I want you to understand he didn't just disguise himself with flesh and blood so that he could fit in. He didn't just appear to be human, trying to acclimate to a culture. Jesus became a native of our race. He became a literal human being. He became one of us. He became a native of planet Earth. His conception was unique. He was born a virgin, but his birth was entirely human. In fact, he was so genuinely human that it wouldn't occur to people who met him that he was anything but human. Have you ever thought about that before? Jesus performed miracles. He would teach with this great wisdom. And people were astounded by his teaching. The Gospels say so. But nobody ever thought, wow, this must be a God. He can't be be human. Nobody ever says that. In fact, remember what happens in Matthew 13 when Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth and he teaches in the synagogue and performs some amazing miracles. Do you remember how the town, his hometown, responded? They were offended by him. Matthew 13 says that they asked, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers and James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? They're, they're not, they aren't, and his sisters, aren't they with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Jesus bothered them because in their minds, he was a regular citizen of Nazareth like everybody else from from, from that town. Jesus had grown up running and playing with their children. He had attended the local yeshiva with all the other boys. And then he shows up acting and doing things that the Messiah would do when he came. But he couldn't be the Messiah, they thought. Because he's just like us. There must be some trick to it. He must be deranged or something. And they didn't like it. They were weirded out by it. Because Jesus, in their eyes, was just like any other human being. He didn't have the right to be the Messiah. He was no different than they were, they thought. In fact, whenever Jesus declared himself to be one with the Father, co-equal with God, the religious leaders tried to execute him for blasphemy for how could a human being declare himself to be God? We see this over and over again in John's gospel. In John 10, for example, uh, this occurs where Jesus says, I and my father are one. And then in verse 31, the Jews in a rage pick up stones again to stone him. Whenever Jesus starts talking about, there are critics of the the gospel of John who say, Jesus was never claiming to be God. Well, tell that to the Jews who were listening to him. We're always running to get stones whenever he started talking to, to stone him for blasphemy. And that's what happened here. And Jesus says, wait a minute, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these are you going to stone me for? And they answered in John 10, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you but because for blasphemy, because you being anthropos, man, human being, you being anthropos, make yourself theos. You being a human being, make yourself God it never occurred to them that just the opposite was actually true. That Jesus, being Theos, being God, had been made Anthropos, a human being, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He fully identified with us. He became as human as you and I are, so much so that no one ever raised a doubt. Now, in this text, That we're reading here in Hebrews 2. There are threads running through the tapestry that point to Jesus' full identification with human beings. We could look at four or five of them this morning. I'm just going to look at two of these threads. First of all, we can see the purpose of Jesus' identification with the human race, the purpose of it. So look at verse 10, if you will. It says, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The reason stated in verse 10 that Jesus became a human being is to bring many sons and daughters to glory or to give them salvation completing or perfecting the mission through his suffering on the cross. Why was it necessary for Jesus to become a human being in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory? Well, the answer is bound up in this word you see in the middle of that text. Jesus is the founder of their salvation, the founder who secures salvation for them. The word founder in verse 10 is this Greek word archegos. Some of you have it translated in your Bibles as the author of their salvation. Some of you have it the captain of their salvation. Some of you might have a translation that says the pioneer of their salvation. There's another translation that says the originator of their salvation. Do you get the idea that there's considerable discussion about how this Greek word ought to be interpreted in the English language? But if you want to get at the heart of what the word means, here is the word I would suggest for you. That Jesus is the champion of our salvation. The champion who secures our salvation. The word archegos is actually a military term. In fact, there are only three other times that this word is used in the New Testament. And each of the three times, The word refers to Jesus Christ. You ready for this? Each of the times, so there's four times total, three other times besides this text, where archegos refers to, is is used in the text. It refers to Jesus Christ every time. And it refers to the death of Christ with the triumphant result of his death in view, his victory over death. His resurrection, his ascension to the Father's right hand. I'll show you Acts three fifteen. Peter is preaching to the Jews in the temple. He says, "You killed the Archegos, the champion of life, whom God raised from the dead." And Acts five thirty and thirty one. Uh, Peter again is preaching. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as the archegos, the champion and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And I believe most, if not all of you are quite familiar with this next text, Hebrews 12, two, looking to Jesus, the archegos, the champion and perfecter, Of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, every time this word archigos is used in the New Testament, it refers to Jesus who goes to war against death and Satan and sin, defeating an enemy that we could never conquer on our own. And he emerges victorious from the grave to receive his inheritance as the king at the father's right hand. That is why I think the word champion gets at the idea in the context. Jesus is our champion in that he fought the battle, standing in for us as one of us. That's why he had to become human. This explains it. He had to stand in for us. He had to fight against sin and death and Satan as one of us. You want a a visual image of this battle? I'll tell you what I think is a perfect visual image. 1 Samuel 17. You don't have to turn there, but it's the story of David and Goliath. This is where David defeats Goliath on his path to becoming king. He's already the anointed one. He he hasn't yet ascended to his throne. And here he's facing Goliath. Goliath. We see David in this chapter, 1 Samuel 17, as an obscure, unnoticed shepherd. Do you realize that, right? The brothers are all there. David's not even at the house. He's out in the field keeping the sheep. He's obscure. He's not paid attention to. Sort of like Jesus in his coming. Yet he's anointed to be king of God's chosen ones. And when he stepped onto the battlefield... David faced a formidable enemy who had never been defeated, who had held the Israelite army in terror, who had mocked the Lord God and who no Israelite could defeat. 1 Samuel 17 says that this Goliath had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. You might not know how much a shekel weighs, but when you get 5000 of them together, I guarantee you that is pretty heavy. 5000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. In the eyes of everyone looking on, David was as good as dead that day. He would not even wear the armor offered to him, remember, that Saul offered. One thrust from one of Goliath's javelins or a cast of his spear was all that was needed. David had gone into the valley of the shadow of death. And when he went into that valley, all of God's chosen people went with him or in them, because David was representing them. That was the deal, right? Instead of the two armies coming together and a lot of bloodshed, the two champions would fight. And whoever would win, would win for their side. That's what a champion is. He stands in for everyone else. He fights the battle on someone else's behalf. And David, in the place of the entire nation, went to his death against the mighty Philistine, with these words, he said, "'You come to me with a sword and with a spear "'and with a javelin, but I come to you "'in the name of the Lord of hosts, "'the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied.'" David said, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord and he will give you into our hand. And you know the rest of the story. David and the Philistine ran at each other and David attacked with a method of warfare that might have seemed very foolish and self-defeating against anyone who was looking on when you saw what Goliath was running with, a sling and a stone against his mighty weapons. But David won. And just as David went into the valley of the shadow of death with a Philistine warrior and emerged victorious in the mighty power of God, that is what Jesus Christ, David's greatest son, did for us. He was born in obscurity among other brothers. Yet he was the anointed one, the Messiah anointed as king of God's people. He succumbed to death, Jesus did, when he died on Calvary's tree, only to emerge victorious over our ultimate enemy. And when Jesus did that, as our representative, he became the champion of our salvation When he died for our sins and rose again, we rose with him. We died with him. We rose with him. This is a common theme in Paul's theology. His death is our death. His new life is our new life. His glory is our glory. And we live forever because he lives forever. Not because we were zapped with foreverness. It's because we're in Christ and he is our representative That is why Paul can declare, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, our champion. That is the purpose of Jesus's identification with us by becoming a human being so he could represent us and be our champion. Now there's one final thread that I wanna look at this morning. It's an idea running through the passage that we have to see. And that is the extent of Jesus's identification. How, How willing was he to identify with us? If the purpose of his identification is to be our champion, what is the extent of it? How far does it go? And again, the answer is in these verses, 10 through 13, where this identification is spoken of, I want you to notice, in terms of familial relationships. Notice in verse 10, that it is God the Father who brings many sons to glory because of the suffering of Christ Jesus. So this is a reference of the fact that we as believers in Christ are the sons and daughters, the children, if you will, of God. And then notice verse 11. He says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. He makes people holy. And those who believe in him are those who are being sanctified. They've been made holy positionally. They're, They're looked at in the sight of God as perfectly holy and they're becoming holy in their practice. That's what believers do. And that is because of the work of Christ. If we were not perfectly holy, we could never stand before God. But notice that Jesus Christ, the sanctifier, and the sons and daughters of God, we who are sanctified, all have one source. Well, What does that mean? We could put it this way. They are all of one stock. They are all of one race. They share a common blood. I would go a little bit further. I think it's even more than that. Here he appears to be referring to them not only as those who share a physical bloodline with Jesus Christ because they're both human, but because Jesus suffered and died for them as a human being. They also share a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ, if they have put their faith in him. Now, how many times have you been in a conversation with somebody and you're introducing people and somebody says, you know, is that your brother or sister? No, 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 we're not related. And then somebody else will speak up and say, well, we are all related, really. We're, we're related in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is true. And Jesus taught that even in the Gospels. And, you know, for some reason, we take that as the lesser of the two kinds of relationships sometimes. As if being spiritually related is not as intense or as important as being related by blood. But in the Bible, it's actually the reverse. The real relationship, the eternal relationship, is the one that is going to matter in the end. It's not the blood relationship only, but the fact that we are related to Jesus Christ. When, when, in, when this life is a distant memory, and I'll tell you, it's going to be very soon, then we will have this spiritual relationship with one another and with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ became one of us. He became related to us by blood so that he could die for us, so he could take our place in his death and resurrection so that we could become spiritually related to him. He is our brother in Christ because he is Christ and we are related to him definitely and and closely. Now I want you to notice as we continue in verse 11 that it is because of this common bond that Jesus Christ shares with the children of God, the Father, that he is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. He's not ashamed of us. Look at verse 12. He says, and here he's citing the Old Testament. We call it Psalm 22, verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, and now he's quoting from Isaiah eight, a snatch from verse seventeen and a snatch from verse eighteen. I don't know that the author knows that we have them divided up into verses like we do nowadays. Okay, but uh, so so that's why there's a crossover there. But he takes apart from verse seventeen and apart from verse eighteen. I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, "I and the children." I behold, I am the children God has given me. That is the children of God whom God has given to me. Now, I want to say a word or two about these Old Testament texts the author is quoting because the authors of our New Testament knew the Hebrew scriptures. They knew their Bibles. They knew them so well. They would often quote scriptures that would have never occurred to us To prove their point, sometimes if you're reading and and it says, well, the prophet said and uh, the New Testament author will quote a verse and you're like, wow, I never would have thought that to apply that from the Psalms or I never would have thought to apply that from from, uh, the Pentateuch. And yet the authors do. They know the context of the Old Testament and what they're saying. So do you remember what Psalm 22 is? Psalm 22 is a prophetic Psalm about Christ. In fact, it's probably the most prophetic of all the Psalms. The opening words of Psalm 22 are the words that Jesus Christ cried out when he is hanging on Calvary's cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This is a Psalm of David, but it is put prophetically on the lips of Christ in the New Testament. And also as we read it, we we, we realize how strikingly close to the life of Jesus Christ, Psalm twenty-two is. Here is a person in deep distress and anguish of soul. And in that kind of sorrow and pain, it is natural, it's a human response to feel as if God's not paying any attention. Yet the author is unaware, I think, the author of the psalm, of how distressed a person can actually be if you look at the distress of Jesus Christ on the cross, suffering for our sins in excruciating agony. These same words wrung from his heart because they express the human emotion he was experiencing. And this cry is fitting on the lips of Christ because like so many of the Psalms, the cry turns from pain and sorrow to hope and rejoicing. So let's keep reading. Look at verse three. He says, "'Yet you are holy.'" enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So the first stanza of the Psalm, which is verses one and two, is a cry of distress. The second stanza, verses three through five, is a confession of hope. And if we were to continue reading the psalm this morning, which we're not going to read the whole thing, we would see this pattern repeated a few different times. A cry of distress focusing on the pain and sorrow and then a confession of hope as the Lord is trusted. But there is a point in the psalm, verse 21, where the author declares, you have rescued me. Do You see it there? I gave you the whole context there. I'm just looking at verses 21 and 22. You have rescued me. After that declaration in that line, the psalm turns completely into praise for God's deliverance. You read to the rest of the end of the psalm and all it is is praise for God's deliverance. And it is precisely at this point in the psalm that the author of Hebrews draws his citation, putting the words of the psalms as if on the lips of Christ himself, I will tell of your name to my brothers. You see that? In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This in italics is what the author is quoting in Hebrews 2. And it is a triumphant cry of praise. I will live again. I will lift up your name to my brothers, those who belong to me, those who are living In the midst of the congregation, those who know the Lord, I will praise you. And by the end of the psalm, we see the exaltation of the one who suffered as all the earth turns to the Lord and the Lord rules over it. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. This is written of David as the king, but it is applied ultimately to Jesus Christ the king. So what we have in Psalm 22 when we place the psalm on the lips of Christ is the agony of his crucifixion as he suffers followed by the triumph of his resurrection as he is delivered being our champion followed by the universal salvation that he's providing through the ends of the earth. So when the author says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, it's not just a statement uh, of observation. It is a triumphant cry of victory and rejoicing because he won the battle, making it possible for us to trust him and cling to him and be truly related to him, both physically and spiritually. And the author of Hebrews borrows language from this psalm precisely at the point where the victory celebration begins. That's significant. The author of Hebrews cites another passage to cement this idea of Jesus' humanity or solidarity with the human race. Let's look at this in verse 13. He says, in 2.13, uh, two different phrases from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 through 18. I will put my trust in him, and behold, I and the children God has given to me. Why does the author of Hebrews cite these verses from Isaiah chapter 8? Well, again, remember, if, you, if you're in Isaiah 8, if you're familiar with Isaiah, and there's some verses you're, you should be very familiar with in Isaiah at this point in, in, in the prophecy, this whole part of Isaiah is a highly prophetic uh, part of Scripture concerning the coming of the Messiah. Every December, we hear multiple references to Isaiah 7, 14, right? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And Isaiah 9, 6, the chapter after chapter 8, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's a lot of Christology going on in actually in chapters 7 through 12 in Isaiah. But what you might not realize is that this entire section of Isaiah, chapter 7 through 12, have to do with something historically. These chapters have to do with whether or not God's people are going to trust fully their God to deliver them, or whether they're going to trust in earthly powers like Egypt or alliances and trust in that to be delivered. That's what's going on in the historical background of Isaiah at this part where he draws this text from. And while so many of the people of Isaiah's day were actually trusting in human deliverers, they weren't trusting in God. The prophet Isaiah here declares that his trust is in God. He could have almost said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's what is going on in the place where the author quotes here the Hebrew scriptures. In Isaiah 8, 17, it says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob because they wouldn't trust him. And here begins the first quotation from Hebrews 2.13, and I will hope in him. Do you see that? And then in verse 18, we see the second quotation from Hebrews 2.13. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. You see, Isaiah is declaring his trust in God. And the children whom the Lord has given to him are those few who are still left in the land who are also trusting the Lord like Isaiah is trusting him. But as a prophecy placed on the lips of Christ, the words express the trust that Jesus manifested in his father as he went to the cross. And the children that God has given to him are those who have placed their faith in him. Now, I'm going to put all this together, all these scriptures. What does this all mean? And if I can just encapsulate it together Here is what the text teach us about Jesus' identification with the human race. Jesus becomes a genuine human being. And as a human being, Jesus does what all humans must do. They must totally trust God to deliver them in the midst of trials and suffering. Jesus' trust in God led him to the cross where he committed himself into the hands of the Father who was faithful and raised him from the dead. And now, because of his death and resurrection, all of those who follow him, who imitate Jesus' faith in God, are now his human brothers and sisters whom the Father has rescued through him and given to him. So when he became a human being, Jesus did not only allow us to identify with him, but Jesus was willingly and victoriously identifying with us. And as a human being, as one of us, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. You know what shame is? Shame is a feeling of fear or pain that's caused when you think you're losing status or respect. You don't like it. You don't like people looking down on you. You're shamed about that. Have you ever been shamed of a person? Maybe someone you're related to and they come around and you don't want anybody to know that they're family. You know what I'm saying? Now, hopefully that doesn't happen, but, but that's, I, we've seen situations like that. Or maybe a, a friend, you're a friend when other friends aren't around. You know, you've got one friend group over here and the other, and you don't want them to mix. Okay, That happens sometimes, even on college campuses. Someone you're embarrassed about being seen with in certain contexts because it threatens your status with another group. That's what shame is. And we're often challenged not to be sh- ashamed of the Lord, right? In other words, to boldly and confidently identify with him and tell people that he's our savior. Paul even challenges his Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of the Lord, Timothy, and don't be ashamed about me. Don't, don't be afraid to be associated with me, even though I'm in prison. I know that that looks bad and people are saying bad things about me because of that, but don't be ashamed about that. However, here is what this text in Hebrews 2 tells us. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of losing status because He's associated with us, because we're His brothers and sisters. Maybe you've done some things in your life you're ashamed of. I think we can all say that. A believer in Christ, you know, should not act that way. And there are thoughts that have come in your head or things that, you would blush at if other people knew that you were involved with at one point. And we know that our church family is a place where of all places, we ought to be able to confess our faults to one another, share with one another. I don't think that means, by the way, you stand up and say everything that's wrong with you in front of the whole congregation. I think it means you find relationships so that you can be honest with, with people and pray with one another and encourage one another. That should be the place that we can do that. But we still struggle with status, even, even in church where we're not supposed to. We struggle with, with you know what people might think about us And we keep up a good appearance. But in our quiet moments, sometimes we do not think very highly about ourselves. And maybe you're here this morning as a genuine believer in Christ and there are things that you could say, I'm ashamed of. How could the Lord accept me? How could God love me? God is speaking to us in this text. And you know what he tells us? He says, the Lord, our Savior, is not ashamed of any of the father's children, his brothers and sisters whom he has sanctified with his own blood. If we were around, he would say, come over here, I want you to meet my brother. I want you to meet my sister. He is proud of us. Do you realize that when it comes to status, we literally share in the status of Jesus Christ. We don't don't share his status. There are things about Jesus as God that obviously we can never think about sharing, but we share in that status. The Lord Jesus became one of us so that he might conquer our sin and death for us and cleanse us. And when he arose from the dead, he ascended to glory at the right hand of the Father. Why? So that he could bring many sons and daughters to glory with him to share in that. He is the champion of our salvation and he identifies fully with those who trust him. So don't ever be discouraged as a child of God. You share a brotherhood with the Lord Jesus Christ. He proudly presents you before the Father as cleansed and sanctified. He loves you as a brother and sister. The incarnation of Christ teaches us that we can trust in Him and live for Him and go on in His strength, resting in the glorious position that we share in Christ, who became one of us father thank